Founding support for The Reading Life comes from Octavia Books. Additional support comes from the Hellas Foundation and the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Hello and welcome to The Reading Life, your weekly look at the Louisiana literary scene. This week we'll be talking with Adrian Van Young, whose new story collection is Midnight Self. If you love creepy, shivery, spooky stories, then New Orleans writer Adrian Van Young is the writer for you. He's the author of two novels, The Man Who Noticed Everything and Shadows in Summerland, and he teaches at St. Martin's Episcopal School in Metairie. Adrian's new collection, Midnight Self, will be published October 28th. Adrian Van Young, welcome back to The Reading Life. Hi, Susan. It's wonderful to be here, and thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Now, Midnight Self is such a great, evocative title. It's as if our midnight selves are different from, like, our high noon selves, which I think they probably are. Oh, for sure. I mean, my so, biorhythms are very low at that time. Of yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so talk a little bit about that particular story and why you chose that title. The title story in the collection is about a new sort of sleep-deprived mother and her husband and their infant son who has just uh, emerged from the sort of rough tail end of a, of a very debilitating skin condition. And they're all sort of cooped up together in that sort of uh, new parenting fog in their house. And things sort of start to take a turn, you could say, in her domestic life when uh, she discovers that her child's baby monitor is crossed with the baby monitor of uh, what she thinks at first is a neighbor. The story sort of goes south from there, but I guess... <laughs> Though suffice to say, it involves a sort of otherworldly doppelganger that she starts yes. to notice walking around her house. She feels like at first is her child, but then it turns out is actually a sort of changeling version of her child in an alternate dimension. One of the great tropes of, of horror fiction is the house. And you have some amazing houses in this book. I mean, the house in Midnight Self, she knows by heart because she's pounding those hallways and stairs to the baby's room every night. You feel that house. You're in its geography. And then you have another house, an historical house, that we first see in 1906. So talk about creating that house. I am sort of obsessed with houses. I mean, funny how the city that I live in. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I love to look at them. I love to walk around them. I'm very much sort of like many writers. I'm sort of an inside person, a homebody. I like to spend time in my own house. I think houses became sort of an unintentional theme in writing these collections. These stories sort of span what is now largely my entire writing career from when I was, I guess, from 2014 all the way to today. Some of them are 10 years old and some of them are six months old. So, yes, the the, the house that you're referring to is the Winchester Mystery House. Mm-hmm. And it's in San Jose, California. And it belonged to uh, a woman named Sarah Winchester, who was the heir to the Winchester Rifle Fortune. Actually, a very interesting woman who had sort of a sort of a sad life. Her husband and her infant daughter died uh, very young, 
And so she was sort of left alone in this labyrinthine sort of mansion mm. in the middle of California and essentially kind of kept building the house um, wow. and building the house uh, in nonsensical ways, like as it describes in the story, having these sort of stairways that lead nowhere or windows that look into interior woodwork in the house. And if you visit it, you can see many of these things. It reminded me of Hogwarts. Yes, the disappearing staircases, you know. It is vaguely Hogwarts-like. But, but unattractive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Hogwarts, but unattractive. is a great. They should put that on the uh, promotional material. There you yeah. go. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> so and another house, it has the lingering presence of its owners and is crammed to the gills with antiques. Yes, I believe that you're referring to the house in the, the the longest story in the collection, which is it's it's about a forty page story, almost like what you would call a novella or a novelette. I've yep. heard it referred to it various ways. To me, in my mind, it's just a very long short story, and it's uh, called The Bachelor's Tale. Um, it's it's actually a sort of turn of the century story. It's one of a few stories mm -hmm. in the collection that that are that could historical. be considered historical. Uh, the collection kind of vacillates between more contemporary settings and more historical settings. At any rate, the house that you're referring to uh, is actually, uh, in the story itself, a sort of living thing. I'll just spoil something else for you that uh, <laughs> feeds on male virgins. Right. <laughs> and and um, there he is, the bachelor's tale. Now There we comes know. the narrator walking in there, um, unbeknownst to him. Who has a little hope walking in, but <laughs> you know, yes. we'll see where that goes. The other kind of thing you, you draw on over and over again, and this is really deliciously creepy, is skin. There's so much about skin in these stories. Huh. The exterior of people, the exterior of houses. I mean, talk a little bit about that. You know what? I, that is so, it's so interesting to have somebody else read your work and pick up on these themes and commonalities that run throughout. Never something that had occurred to me, but you're flesh absolutely strip? right. Flesh strip? You're absolutely... Well, the flesh strip, certainly... Oh. Um, the flesh strip. She says, twisting in her chair. I mean, <laughs> the flesh strip is, I, it's probably, I would consider it to be the most sort of evil story I've ever written. Yes. <laughs> I've only read these and it's got to be, I mean, right up there. You're looking I mean. at me with, with an expression where I can tell that you mean it, Susan. Um, but I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad it's, that I was you did able your to job. these strong emotions. <laughs> The flesh strip is a very sort of grim story about um, a mother and daughter uh, living together and once again a sort of decaying mansion, which is meant to be on the Gulf Coast somewhere. Um, I think you called it a failing house. Yes. A failing Victorian house, which I loved the idea that a house could fail. Yes, and this this house had, has failed in a in a really big way. Oh um, yeah, beyond Grey Gardens. <laughs> yes, yeah. its inhabitants have failed it. It's failed its inhabitants. It is a sort of Grey Gardens trope, um, mm -hmm. sort of a Gothic ancestral mansion with um, two sort of bizarre women living inside of it. But the story mainly focuses on sort of what I would call it's like a haunted gnome doll that yeah. the daughter, who is called the daughter in the story, she doesn't have a name outside of that. At least that's mentioned often to refer to her. I believe her name is Virginia, though. At any rate, mm -hmm. the daughter buys this doll for her mother and is immediately struck that it has this sort of deformity on the back of its neck, which, where the title comes from, is the uh, the flesh strip that runs across the back of its neck, which takes on a sort of like magical import in the story. Yes. But yes, skin is absolutely something I had not noticed. There's skin and 
the story about uh, Death's emissary who wears um, his skin as a sort of um, suit of clothing. Mm-hmm. There's, of course, the skin thing, which is an alien creature that's sort of made out of yep. s- seemingly loose human skin. Yes. And you Good. say that with such a charming Good smile. Reading. It's so cheering. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a very happy horror writer. I know you I are. Like I just love that. I have a very um, sort of uh, cosmic, pe- cosmically pessimist outlook, but I'm a very happy person. That's, that's <laughs> delightful to hear, Good. to know. <laughs> but the other thing I was thinking about, you see horror and terrible things in unexpected places. I mean, I think of, okay, you think of Stephen King and you think of Pennywise the Clown, of course. That's his sign- one of his sure. signature beings. And one of your signature beings is a shape, and it's the shape of an air dancer. Oh, yes. You know what I mean? That's yes. like your shape of total evil, and it's in more than one story. Is it? Yeah. My God, I hadn't even noticed. Yeah. Well, I certainly know that Long, and it's like a... Oh, right. Well, yes. The shape itself. The shape itself. Absolutely, yes. I was like... But but then again, I'm wondering... I am somewhat actually terrified of air dancers. For those of you who are wondering what we're talking about, we're talking about the twisty tube men that you see in uh, often used car dealerships. dealerships. Drive down veterans, and you'll see plenty of air dancers. Oh, yes. So as you can imagine, veterans and airline highway are like a corridor of horrors for me because I am very creeped out by those twisty tube men. That can be your literary landmark. (laughs) It should be. Rather than, you know, Rand Rice's house. Right, exactly. The twisty tube man in front of Twice the Ice. So what is it? What is it about that for you? Something about the shape I find to be so unnatural and so evocative. I think it's it's part of the urban landscape. I mean, it's something that we yeah. see all the time. For many years, I don't think I even noticed them. And then I actually have a memory of waiting to pick my son up from a music lesson or something like that on some kind of banal parenting errand. And I and I and I started to look closer and closer at this twisty tube man. And and I first of all was like, I have to write a story about this twisty tube man one day perhaps devouring transphobic teenagers, which is what happens in the actual story itself. Mm -hmm. But also I was, I had kind of just realized for the first time, this sort of sense of the uncanny that those objects carry for me. And the hideousness of its mouth. Oh, yes. I hadn't thought about that before either. (laughs) It's sort of, its mouth, yes, is, is, it sort of looks, I think generally speaking, the mouths are um, closed orifices, but in the story um, that, um, that changes. That, that morphs along with the shape of the twisty tube man himself. Well, what was so interesting to me is that I always thought of those things as, as kind of powerless, like balloons or something being, you know, buffeted about by the fan it's attached to with no power or control or anything. And you turn it into something really powerful and huge. Sure. I mean, it suggests being an, an autonomous object yeah. uh, by the way that it moves when in reality it's actually i believe controlled by a fan in the base of, right. the, of the object but yes that story was very fun to write because i think i was very much tapping into my very primal fear well on the one hand of sort of i think the urban landscape or suburban sprawl or whatever you want to call it which i think is also vaguely creepy specifically in america oh, yeah but also that that you know sort of device itself i was finally able to to, to not afraid anymore no, no i'm still i'm still <laughs> vaguely terrified of the twisty tube man in fact i was very validated upon seeing uh the the, the jordan peele movie nope the oh, twisty nope. tube man become a um motif 
at the beginning of the film to sort of presage the alien invasion. Um, Wow. Tapping into the zeitgeist as always. Would you ever scare yourself when you're writing these stories? What is it like? What does it feel like when you hit upon something especially scary or grotesque even? You know, it's a really interesting question, Susan. I, I, I'm constantly hearing from other writers of the macabre and the uncanny, other horror writers, for lack of a better term, that are actually very scared of a lot of horror fiction and films. Mm-hmm. I myself am not. I'm not very easily scared. Um, I think recently I went to, to the New Orleans Nightmare and I don't mean to speak ill of the Neurons and America because the people who run it are lovely people, and it's very, very well done. But I came out of the haunted house not particularly scared. I think it <laughs> takes a lot to scare me, um, and that applies to most every film that I've seen as well. So I often, I think I'm often going out of my way to actually sort of feel something in that regard because I oh. feel like my entire life I have sort of subsumed myself in the genre, which for better or worse, although I'm fascinated by it, often doesn't have much of an effect on me. Um, and so I think by writing in writing my own stories, I'm often trying to tap into that sort of almost primal fear that I used to feel perhaps as a child, right? I think mm-hmm. as writers, we're always trying to get back to what we identified with as children and what moved us when we were young. And I think right. reading scary stories to tell in the dark, reading Stephen King, reading Shirley Jackson when I was young, oh, uh, yeah. I was frightened. And I think I'm trying to get back to that in a sense. So what do you think, what are the qualities that you think scare a reader, terrify a reader? Well, I'm certainly more of a proponent of sort of uh, the chill as opposed to the shock. Um, I Uh, find that to be much more effective. I don't find gore and blood to be particularly interesting or effective, although I do, of course, always include a little bit of violence in my stories because I think it sort of comes to the territory. But I'm much more interested in uh, the macabre and the uncanny, sort of familiar but unfamiliar, or at least that trope, and the idea of these things that surround us that at first glance, the the sort of the foggy midnight house with the exhausted parents, uh, the twisty the twisty tube man in the car lot, the uh, thrift store purchase of the, the bizarre doll from the Goodwill. Right. And, you know, these are things I think that many of us encounter every day, and on the face of things, we don't think of them as inherently scary. But yes, as a writer, I'm always sort of trying to tap into that sense of the uncanny that sort of lives with us in our everyday lives and um, abides with us um, on a day-to-day when I, basis. When I think of the stories in this in this collection, I think of atmosphere. I mean, you feel like you have really entered into a different kind of air in a way. In Midnight Self, you feel that panic and that terror racing to the kids' room and racing around the house in the dark. And especially all the houses are like that. You begin to feel you know them and you could walk walk around in them. And it's that's what makes them fun, I think. It's like a game. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. Many of the writers that I love and admire are also big sort of setting and or atmosphere people. I, I mentioned uh, Shelley Jackson a moment ago. but Oh, yeah. One of my favorite writers of all time, certainly one of my favorite horror writers, my top top three. And uh, one thing that I loved about Jackson's work was that it was always so centered on the house or the place. Like, you know, you can't read, um, you know, we've always lived in the castle without remembering the house. You can't certainly can't read The Haunting of Hill House without remembering the house. house. <laughs> um, and in fact, The Sundial, um, all of her books, I think that the story is inextricable from the setting. 
Um, and I feel that way about many of my favorite writers, um, like whether it's sort of, you know, like an, an open desert plain in the Southwest, you know, someone like Cormac McCarthy or yeah. whether, you know, it's um, it's a small town and um, let's say a small, a small town in Ohio, you know, a beloved, you know, these are all places that I think the settings are inextricable from the stories that drive them and vice versa. Does living in New Orleans add anything to your work or your, the way you feel about your work? It really does. I mean, I think New Orleans is the most gothic city in America. And I say that not only because of the crumbling infrastructure and the sort of resplendent decay of how the city looks, uh, but I say that because of its history. And I say that because of its obsession with the supernatural. And I think we all share it. Yes. Everybody knows where the vampires are. Absolutely. I mean, there's a reason that there are ghost and vampire tours here, you know, and they have them in other cities, but they're perhaps not done as well. And I just think that it has been profoundly enriching for me in terms of my work. And Mm -hmm. even just going on a stroll through the French Quarter at night or through the Bywater at night, I mean, I think can kind of furnish you with ideas. I love the city's obsession with Halloween. Me and my wife are 100 percent Halloween people. And we feel very at home here. Um, I think it's a city <laughs> and where... And I know what you mean by Halloween people, too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that could be the title of the story. It, it could. Will be. Right. Coming soon. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so how long have you been here? How has being in New Orleans overlapped with your writing life if it's been 10 years? Yes, I have been here for 10 years now. I would say mainly... I think the city has sort of allowed me to write more comfortably into a lot of my preoccupations. Mm-hmm. I think that I've always taken sort of supernatural and uncanny fiction seriously. And I think within the last 10 years or so in film and in fiction, we've gone through a sort of a golden age of, oh, yeah. of horror where I think the genre is being taken seriously again. And a lot of wonder, wonderful people are doing wonderful things within the genre. But I do think that living here has perhaps allowed me to feel a bit more comfortable with who I am. I never didn't take myself Mm -hmm. seriously or I never thought I was some nut. But living here, I think, has sort of normalized my nuttiness and normalized my preoccupations uh, in a way that that. I have felt has been very positive for me as an artist Uh, because it allows me to to truly be myself without, you know, fear of being judged or without fear of judging myself. Or hope of being loved. You never (laughs) know. There you go. God, I went right to that cosmic pessimism again. (laughs) Really, you did, didn't you? So tell me, how did you, how did you know you were, you were done? How did you know this was a collection and it was ready to go? How do you stop when you're accumulating work like that? That's also a great question. I think it's oftentimes hard to put a collection together. I think there has to be sort of some kind of commonality of theme Mm -hmm. here I think you're right I think that houses was certainly one of them skin was not something that I had considered but thank you for creeping me out in regards to my (laughs) own work I will now go home and think about skin the creepy reading life (laughs) right exactly (laughs) but I think there has to be sort of a a thematic crossover uh, in the stories Um, I also think that the stories ideally should span somewhat of a a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. Um, I like story collections that are really tight and that are sort of almost themed, but I also like ones that are sort of like a career overview of the last 10 years of this writer's life. I suppose as a writer, I'm sort of a mid-career right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I like to think of these stories as representative of sort of my mid-career as a writer. I had originally included, I think, 12 or 13, um, and I ended up taking a bunch of them out 
they didn't seem to fit. They were either sort of more of the Western genre or more kind of Southern Gothic stories that mm-hmm. I feel like didn't necessarily fit. These stories also, as I'm sure you've noticed, they all have a creature or a monster in them oh, yeah. of one kind or another. I think except for the first story, which where the monster wears a human face, um, I think most of the stories have a creature. So they were sort of also meant to be creature-themed stories and to speak with my sort of childhood obsession and, and ongoing obsession with monsters. Amen. (laughs) So I'm curious which you like writing better, the historical stories or the contemporary stories? That's also a great question. And I've actually been asking myself a lot about this recently. I think I've sort of undergoing almost a personal reckoning or an aesthetic reckoning as a writer. And I've actually decided that I enjoy writing about contemporary life more. Interesting. Uh, and my work has been certainly drifting in that direction. I do happen also to be writing a historical novel at the moment about the Polish short story writer Bruno Schulz, who was oh, wow. murdered during the Holocaust, mm-hmm. which is a little bit less of the horror genre, although, of course, yeah. even you know the utterance of, of Holocaust is evocative of some of those things. But I would say on the whole, um, in terms of my short fiction, I have sort of drifted more into the domain of writing about contemporary life. That might have to do with the fact of where I am in my life right now. I have two mm-hmm. young children. Yeah. Uh, I teach high school. I just feel like there's not a lot of room in my life now to maybe dream of other moments than the one I'm in, perhaps. Of course. So I have definitely drifted more into the contemporary domain. Do your students ever read your stories? I'm not sure. <laughs> um, I love that I, confiding look. I'm not sure, and I'm not sure if I want to know. <laughs> I don't discourage them. I'm very open about the fact that I'm a writer who publishes regularly. And if you were to visit my classroom, I think you would not be surprised by some of the decorations that I have on my walls. But I, I don't know if my students always take the time to read my fiction. I certainly would not discourage them from doing it. Yeah. But I would also want to warn them about what they might find. Well, Halloween is coming, and this is the perfect book for it <laughs> by you. a Halloween person. Yes, absolutely. So, we've been talking with Adrian Van Young, whose new story collection is Midnight Self. You can meet him Saturday, October 28th at 5, when he appears in conversation with Anya Groner at Blue Cypress Books. Adrian, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having <laughs> me back. Here's what's on tap in the literary life this week. The Friends of the Jefferson Public Library Big Book Sale takes place October 20th through 22nd at the Pontchartrain Center in Kenner. Hours are Friday and Saturday, 10 to 7, and Sunday, noon to 5. There will be more than 65,000 used books, CDs, DVDs, videos, and records. Credit cards only, no checks. Four books will be auctioned this time, The Civil War Wall Chart, a reprint of John James Audubon, The Birds of America, Harry Potter, Page to Screen by Bob McCabe, and Botanica's Roses, The Encyclopedia of Roses by David Austin. Joshua Weissman discusses in science texture over taste, an unapologetic cookbook, Friday, October 20th at 5 at Garden District Bookshop. The author of Pearls Before Swine and the New York Times bestselling Timmy Failure series, Stefan Postis reads from and signs his latest middle-grade novel, Looking Up, Sunday, October 22nd at 3 at Garden District Bookshop. M.R. Fournay signs her New Orleans set middle-grade novel, Brick Dust and Bones, Monday, October 23rd at 4.30 at Octavia Books. 
Friends, pianist, and entertainers Michael Harold and Quinn Peeper celebrate their new book, Classical Shindig, amateur artistry from the simple to the sublime, with a book signing and a piano in a truck concert, Wednesday, October 25th at 6 at Octavia Books. Marlene Tressman discusses Inside's Most Fortunate Unfortunates, the Jewish Children's Home of New Orleans, Wednesday, October 25th at 6.30 at the Museum of Southern Jewish Experience, and again Sunday, October 29th at 4 with a conversation with Tulane history professor emeritus Larry Powell at Octavia Books. Kim Wickens discusses Inside's Lexington, Thursday, October 26th at 6 at Garden District Bookshop. Cynthia Newberry Martin discusses and signs her new novel, The Art of Her Life, and appears in conversation with poet Gina Ferrara, Thursday, October 26 at 6 at Octavia Books. Columbia University professor James Shapiro will present the 33rd Josephine Gessner Ferguson Lecture, Macbeth and Harlem, The Making of the Federal Theater's Greatest Hit, Thursday, October 26 at 7 in Rogers Memorial Chapel at Tulane University. Blue Cypress Books presents an evening with Jenna Rose Nethercott, author of Thistlefoot, and her traveling puppet theater, Friday, October 27th at 6. Designer June Reese discusses and signs Iconic Home, Thursday, October 26th at 6 at Baldwin & Co. Books. This is a ticketed event. One Book, One New Orleans is currently selecting their 2024 reading selection. The three finalists are All This Could Be Yours by Jamie Attenberg, I'm Always So Serious by Charisma Price, and Black Creole Chronicles by Mona Lisa Saloy. Vote on the group Facebook page. The 19th Louisiana Book Festival is set for Saturday, October 28th from 9 to 4 in downtown Baton Rouge's Capitol Park. Nearly 200 authors and presenters will appear, ranging from award winners to self-published and debut authors, with more than 100 panels and programs throughout the day, followed by book signings. Among the authors appearing are David Armand, Jack Bedell, Richard Campanella, Wendy Chin Tanner, Andre Debuse II, John Dufresne, Marty Dumas, T.R. Johnson, Rodney Jones, Christine Kwan, Robert Mann, Charisma Price, Maurice Ruffin, and many others. The festival also includes a Young Readers Pavilion and a teen headquarters with activities and award-winning authors. There will be food vendors and other book-related activities and exhibitors. For information, check out louisianabookfestival.org. Founding support for The Reading Life comes from Octavia Books, with major support from Rouse's Markets. Additional support comes from the Hellas Foundation, the Jefferson Parish Public Library, and the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in The Reading Life do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The theme song for The Reading Life is by Matt Perrine and Sunflower City. The Reading Life is produced by George Ingmeyer and is a production of WWNO. You can listen to us anytime or subscribe to our podcast at WWNO.org. And you can email us at the Reading Life at WWNO.org.